Good morning. Feel free to send in those videos uh, so we can uh, see what's going on at your place of residence. Lots happening at mine, as you can see. Uh, we're continuing on uh, this week in 2 Thessalonians. Uh, Jake has done a great job leading us through that first letter to the church at Thessalonica, highlighting two prayers, one in the first part, one in the ending part, that, that kind of organized the hopes and dreams that Paul had for this fledgling church that he loved, that he planted, writing about the never-ending journey of sanctification, writing about the importance of faith, hope, and love, especially love, as we live into what God's making us to be. And what Paul may not have realized when he wrote the first letter, but he soon realized after, was that there was a need for a second letter. Scholars tell us not long after that first one, he wrote a second letter, uh, and, and they're connected they deal with some of the same themes, but the main crisis that the second letter addresses is, uh, is a rumor that has been circulating. Some people say it came from Paul himself, that Jesus has already returned. And if that's the case, what they're experiencing might be as good as it's going to get. Central issue he's addressing, if you look at chapter 2, we're going to read through pretty much the whole book because it's so short, but we'll read it in different chunks. But in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, Paul kind of addresses this main idea. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, we're going to get back to that and talk about what, what's happening because they're hearing this and how Paul's going to address it. But, but to understand it better, I want us to get the whole context of the letter. So go back in chapter 1, and we'll read the first four, first four verses of chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you're enduring. See, Paul's excited to commend them on what he sees in them, which is growing faith and increasing love. The things he's pointed out to them in the first letter, you need to work and develop these. These are the things we're praying for you. He actually sees it happening, and they're so excited that he's boasting to the other churches. Wouldn't it be great if people were talking about the, the churches in hope and saying they're growing in faith and they love each other more and more and more, if that's what they were addressing and saying about us. And yet, despite their faithfulness, you caught it at the end of verse 4, despite their faithfulness, there is yet more persecution and suffering. Let's look at verses 5 to 12 of chapter 1. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. And with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that God may count you worthy of his calling 
and thy, that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray that this so the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he says, in spite of all this persecution, I want you to know that your growing faith and increasing love will not go unrewarded. God will take care of the issue. The persecution, Jake touched on it, it was happening during the first letter, but it's gotten worse. And it's a hard way to live when you're suffering. We all know that, right? In the middle of a, of a time of suffering, whether it be religious persecution or a health issue or, or a, a loneliness that comes from this thing like a pandemic, whatever it is, that's a difficult way to live. And for these guys, it's gotten worse. Paul says it's not going to be like this forever. When Jesus returns, all things are going to be made right. But see, that, that's the problem. Because some people are thinking, maybe he's already come. But Paul, didn't, didn't we hear from such and such that said, you said that Jesus has already turned, that this day of the Lord has already begun? See, a lot of them thought the day of the Lord was this process where God would come in judgment. And they thought, okay, it's already started and it's going on, but it really doesn't seem to be getting any better. And maybe they don't believe it. Maybe they're like, no, it can't. It can't be that he's already come back and it's still this bad. But you know, have you ever had that just little niggling of doubt in the back of your mind? You think, oh, maybe. And it just, it, 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 it slows you down. It, it, it demotivates you when you feel that way. The, the thought of suffering, as hard as it is, when it's complicated by people saying Jesus has already come back and this, you know, this is it, it, it leads them to a question. Is this all there is? The heart of the whole letter, Paul's addressing this dilemma. If Jesus has really come back, which some people are saying already, if his judgment has started, is this as good as it gets? Now, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I got that part of the, the text fairly early, but then I thought, how do you apply that to today? I struggle over this because I don't know about you, but I don't know of a lot of churches or religious leaders that are standing up in their pulpits and saying, Jesus has already come back. Right? It's not exactly the same situation that we're living in. So how do we apply what he's saying to them? How do we relate their dilemma to our context? And, and the more I thought about it, I realized, you know, often it's not about Jesus' return, but it's about faith in general that we begin to wonder. Is this all there is? I was raised um, in a Christian family, a loving, great Christian family. I, I count myself blessed for that. Uh, I always say I was in church for my age plus nine months because from the point of conception, every time the church doors were open, I was there, uh, even before I was born. But there was a phrase that was very common as I grew up, and it's still out there quite a bit, the victorious Christian life. We want to live the victorious Christian life. And I came to a point in my late high school and early college years, and, and even today where I'm like, okay, this doesn't feel very victorious. You ever felt that way about the Christian life? Yes, I believe it. Yes, I trust, but I I, I seem to keep making the same mistakes. I, I seem to keep failing. I seem to keep struggling. I thought that following Jesus would look differently. How many of you thought when you became Christians that following Jesus would look differently than it actually has played out? Right? Yeah, there's a few of you. Right? Yeah, online, everybody online raised their hands. I saw that. <laughs> right? But our context of life challenges the spiritual things that we think especially during a pandemic. How many of you expected 2020 to go the way it's played out, right? I've been loving watching the memes 
on, on the computer, on Facebook and all that. The, the first picture I'll show you is this kid in history class years from now, looking back, trying to remember all the things that happened in 2020. He just can't do it. I can't remember everything that happened. And then there's all these things that say if, if 2020 was a certain thing, like if 2020 was, I think, an ice cream truck. If 2020 was an ice cream truck, it would be liver and onions. That's what it would be. Now, some of you like that, and that's a whole different problem. Uh, if 2020 was, what's next, a car? If 2020 was a car, that's 2020, right? Uh, if 2020 was, now I'll get the slide. Ouch, I know that hurts. I read, several people said, don't put that one in, but I thought, no, it communicates. If 2020 was a playground slide, that's what it would look like. What about if it was a bag of chips, orange juice and toothpaste? Have you ever had those flavors together, right? If 2020 was a bag of chips, or now we need to hold off on this one for a second, because if you've ever had a colonoscopy, you're going to identify with this. <laughs> if 2020 was a drink, it would be the drink that you prep for a colonoscopy with, because I've had one, and the colonoscopy was not bad, but the, the 24 hours prior was one of the worst experiences of my life, right? That if 2020, we laugh, because we can identify. Nobody thought 2020 was going to look like this. Nobody, I, I just saw one this morning that said, you know, they, they've proven that, that one year of a dog's life is not seven human years, but one year of 2020 is seven human years. That's the way they felt like. And so we, we have these situations where our expectations are pulled out from under us, where everything changes. And that happens in the spiritual life too. That's happened to the Thessalonians. We thought if Jesus returned, it would look better than this. And we think, if, I, I thought if I just gave my life to Jesus and followed him, that it would be more of an upward path instead of up, up, down, up, up, down, up, up, down. Have you ever felt that way? See, see, their issues in Thessalonica were misunderstandings about Christ's return. I think our issues aren't about his return, but they're about our expectations for God because our our theological ideas, and some of you think, well, I don't have to, everybody has theological ideas. What you think about God, what you think about how the world should function, those are theological ideas, and sometimes we don't even realize we have them, but they impact our lives. You know, people have a picture of God as this grandfather with a long white beard that, that's very gentle and kind and likes his grandchildren, and every now and then he comes out with a very wise saying that we should pay attention to, but, you know, he's not really that active. He kind of sits on his chair and watches. They don't realize maybe they have that view of God, but it impacts the way they interact with him, the way they live their life. Or others have God as the, the angry judge who's, who's constantly pointing out our faults and, our, and condemning, and they may not realize that's their picture. Of, it's a theological idea that they have that shapes their life. Well, the Thessalonians had this idea that maybe Jesus had come back and it was shaping their life. And we have these expectations for what faith would look like that shape our life. And, and what, what Paul addresses here in the text, there's two responses that he sees. Uh, response number one on the people's part is that they are unsettled and alarmed. We saw that in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, don't become easily unsettled and alarmed. And the reason he says don't become that is because they were becoming that. They were unsettled. And they were alarmed. And the same thing plays out in our lives. When, when our spiritual expectations for what we think God is going to do don't go the way we thought they were supposed to go, we get unsettled, we get anxious, we get alarmed, we get fearful. You see, fear is at the root of it. It really is. The, the, the emotions, that's the thing is, we tend to have emotions and we react to them. And what we should do when we notice an emotion, we should actually sit down with it and try to figure out what's driving it. 
to peel back the layers. But a typical pattern that I think we fall into, or at least I, I see it in my own life, things don't go according to what I thought, right? Suffering and persecution, difficulty, whatever. And I begin to feel unsettled and alarmed. I feel my pulse quicken a little bit. I get that feeling in the pit of my stomach. You ever have that feeling when you just know something's not quite right? And, and I get irritable, I get angry, I'm very short-tempered, and I react to this emotion of feeling fear. But if you sit with that and you begin to say, why is it? What is it I'm afraid of? If they'd sat back and said, why are we upset? And realize, we feel like if, if Jesus has already come and this is all there is, we've, we've staked our life on something and it really doesn't help. And Paul's saying, you've got you to peel it back and realize that, that that's not the issue. What you're, you're basing your reaction on something that's wrong. They were feeling unsettled and alarmed because they thought maybe Jesus had already returned. Maybe the day of the Lord has already begun. And it sure doesn't look like we thought it would. And Paul says, look deeper. Rest assured that what you're thinking isn't true. Instead of just reacting being angry and fearful, listen. There's a second type of response. In chapter 3, he talks about that, starting with verse 6 to 15 in chapter 3. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and who does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. And we hear that some of you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of what is doing right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. See, response number two. <laughs> Some people react by being unsettled, fearful, angry, alarmed. Other people respond being passive and unengaged. I think this takes two forms in Thessalonica from what we read in the text. One is giving up. I'm discouraged. Why bother? If things haven't gone the way I thought they would. I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just going to play back and lay back and do as little as I possibly can. The second is a more spiritual response <laughs> where we settle in and say, well, God's in charge. He's playing this out. I'm not going to engage. I'm just going to let God do what God's going to do. I remember years ago, oh, I shouldn't tell this story. We had, a, we had a person who will remain nameless. It was a young person going on a mission trip. And, and just a couple, maybe a month before we had to go, they had a time of prayer request, and this young person prayed, uh, I just pray that I get my passport in time. Well, the backstory to that is that long ago we had said, fill out your passport application, and this person had put it off and put it off and put it off. And now, a month before, the passport still hadn't come, and he was just praying that God would work. And I remember my wife saying, if you'd put in your passport application at the beginning, right? That, but that, we, we spiritualize things. Oh, if, God's go, if God wants it to be, it's going to come about, and we do nothing. Right? That's another response that you see in Thessalonica. People, some people aren't working. Some people have, have, have stopped engaging, maybe because they're disappointed. Why? Why? 
Another one, well, God's already here, so let's let him do his thing. Both of these, whether it's fear and unsettledness or passivity, were errors that Paul is seeking to correct. I love that one phrase in verse 11. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. The, the Greek words there are ergazomenos, er, means busy, industrious, right? Doing things. And then there's this word peri ergazomenos. It's the same word with peri in front of it, peri like perimeter. And so what he's saying is they're not busy, they're walking around busy. They're busy bodies. They're, they, instead of actually doing anything productive, they're just meddling. They're even maybe perpetuating this idea that Jesus has already come back. I had one guy told me before I came to pastor a church, I asked for some advice from a pastor. And he said, if you can get people so busy rowing the boat, they won't have time to rock it. And I thought that was, that was really good advice, but maybe, maybe too busy sometimes. But anyway, th- what I see here in these two responses is a perfect balancing of this tension we live with in the Christian life. We are called to be still and to know that God is God, not to, not to be unsettled, not to be alarmed, to rest in the fact that God is taking care of things. But we're also called to be active and engaged. Being still, which is a part of all of our lives, should be, doesn't mean that we, we completely stop. See, these imbalances flow out of our misunderstanding of what it actually looks like to follow, follow Jesus. Now, Paul, he goes back to what Paul has already taught them. And... and in, in chapter 2, verses 3 to 12, he kind of refers back to this and addresses this issue of, has Jesus come back yet? I'm just going to read it, and then we'll talk about it in a few minutes. I don't want to jump off the deep end into all my end time stuff here, but we'll talk about it because it's there, and we'll, you know, some of it you'll hear from Revelation. I'm going to take you back there whether you want to go or not. Uh, chapter 2, let's read uh, 3 to 12. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day, this day of the Lord's return, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Now, see, that's the bummer. We, we don't have all the things that he used to tell them, so we don't know exactly all of them. Verse 6, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that, deserves, that deceives those who are perishing. They punish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but who have delighted in wickedness. Now, Paul refers back, like I say, to what he's already taught. And we have some of that in 1 Thessalonians, but there's a lot that we don't have. So you have to be careful not to assume we know what, what, how Paul actually specified this to play out. Um, and, and, and I think a lot of this relates back to what we saw as we went through Revelation. Um, I don't wanna, like I say, I don't want to jump off the deep end and explain everything about the end times because I don't know everything about the end times. But I think there's three things that Paul says we can be sure of 
as we await the coming of Jesus. First is that evil will intensify. He states clearly that the final of the Lord, the final return, the day of the Lord, will not happen before evil gets worse. There's two things, he says in verse 3 and 4, until the rebellion occurs and until the man of lawlessness is revealed. And in, in some way, before the return of Jesus, there'll be a growing rebellion against God. And there is this figure, this man of lawlessness, who epitomizes that, who, who stands against God, who holds himself up to be God in the temple. It says, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, this typically is who we refer to as the Antichrist. And that's who I think it is. But I, I, I want us to be careful trying to identify exactly who that is, because I think Paul says, too, that all along the journey, there'll be these, these people that come in the spirit of Antichrist. They, they're doing the same things, but that it will build to this one particular figure who is the embodiment of evil. And I, I, I think, and you, you, I'll tip my hand here what I think, and you can buy it or not buy it or reject it or fire me or whatever you want. But I think based on what I said about Revelation, I think ultimately this is when Satan is finally set free at the end and released for a short time, it says in Revelation, to go about deceiving the nations. That's in Revelation 20. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short period of time. And, and what I think is that he's restrained right now, and we see these, these two beasts in Revelation doing his bidding, the, the two beasts that came, one from the sea and one from the land. But at some point, just prior to the return, it says he will be released for a short amount of time. And it says at the end of, or later on in chapter 20, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they're like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. See, Paul tells the Thessalonians this rebellion and this man of lawlessness are going to happen before the final return of Jesus. In other words, evil is going to intensify. But he also says the coming of Jesus will destroy evil. In chapter 2, verse 8 of Second Thessalonians, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy, destroy by the splendor of his coming. If you remember back in Revelation 19, it said a sword comes out of his mouth. And here Paul says, when that evil one is revealed, finally, that Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth. Now, I've got a candle. Some of you have been wondering, why is this candle sitting here? Um, and I realize I'm flipping metaphors on their head, but I want you to imagine that instead of light and purity, like we're going in 1 John next week, so you're going to hear about God as light, but let's forget that. Imagine that this candle is the culmination of this man of lawlessness, evil embodied, the complete rebellion, and then Jesus shows up with the breath of his mouth, and it's gone. That's the image. Paul says, yes, evil's going to intensify. There'll be rebellion, people turn against God, and then this one, this man of lawlessness is going to show up, and he's going to exalt himself up against God, and then Jesus will return, and it's all over. 
That easy. That's the comparison I think Paul wants you to see. And he wants them to know the coming hasn't happened. As you see the evil intensifying, it's not happened yet. Because when he comes, it will be done. All will be made new. Paul says, I'm telling you this, so I want you to stop being fearful. I want you to stop being passive. I want you to stand firm in what God has done. Look at verses 13 to 17 of chapter 2. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word or mouth or by letter. And may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Stand firm in what God has done. He says he's loved you. He's chosen you. He's made you his own. He's sanctifying you. I know the persecution's there. I know it's hard, but realize he has not returned yet. Don't, you can, but you can stand firm in what he has done already. Right? I love that. John 19, 30, when Jesus had received the drink, he said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What God has done already is that he has come, he has died, he has overthrown evil. He let evil come at him with everything it had. It crucified him, it killed him, and then he rose from the dead. And that's what we can rest in, that no matter the suffering... That one day God will return and complete what he started at that point. See, the, t- the times will come when we'll all feel unsettled and alarmed. The times will come when life isn't playing out and we just want to withdraw. We want to be passive. We want to quit. But the call is, as we see evil intensifying, to stand on what God has done for us already. See, 2 Thessalonians is really Paul's call back to the basics. And basics are important. Glenn and I are going to start doing some basketball things with some of the girls at the high school. Like, we can only do groups of four. They have to bring their own basketball. Um, so we'll have eight total, Then they can't pass to each other. They can't tell, we can't scrimmage. So the funny thing about this is this is the thing you always want to do in practice. You want to make them do these drills, these repetitions, these basics. But they hate them because they want to play basketball. They want to scrimmage. Well, you can't scrimmage now, COVID. Thank you for that for a little bit. Because we're going to focus on just the basics. They're going to learn how to plant their feet. They're going to learn how to pivot. They're going to learn how to dribble. Things that they never want to practice because they're not fun. But they are the key to having a good basketball team. And Paul shows us some of the basics of the faith that, that sometimes aren't as fun as this glorious, victorious Christian life, but are the keys if we're going to live it out. I see three things that he says. First of all, trust, don't fear. Chapter 3, verse 3, the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. When you're tempted to fear, when you're feeling unsettled, trust. As believers realize that the Spirit of God lives inside of you and you can rest in the fact that the fact you have the Spirit of God, that means you are his and nobody can ever take that away. Revelation reminded us that even if we die, we do not lose anything. And I would encourage you, trust, don't fear. Take some time to internalize some scripture, some some references that that when you're feeling that unsettledness or that anxiety, 
that alarm. Things like, like Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You know, trust never feels good at the beginning. It never. I, I can remember I was a kid, and we were at, the, at this indoor swimming pool in Boone, that my parents took us to, and I was just learning to swim, and my dad's treading water in the eight-foot deep end of the section. Section I'm maybe in, I don't know, I'm little, and I don't swim well. I, I sink like a stone, but my dad's saying, jump in, I'll catch you, jump in. And I want to, but I'm terrified. Uh, trust, trusting my dad, I could stand there, and he'd say, don't you think I'll catch you? And I'd be like, yes, you bet I do. But that's not trust, is it? Trust is when I jump in, and that trust initially didn't feel, for, for that millisecond, two, however long it took me to hit the water, it didn't feel very good, right? And I think I caught him more than he caught me when I went in. I just grabbed like, you know, because you're scared. Trust never feels good at the start. It feels good when, when God meets you there. Romans 8, 14 to 16. Write this down on a card, memorize it, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God or the children of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave, again, to fear. But you receive the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. See, this relational nature that we have with God through the cross is what we can trust and rest in. Trust, don't fear. And as we begin to trust, our trust is, is, um, we can see it. It's, uh, what's the word? I can't, it's played out. We know it's there by our action. And that's the second thing. Engage, don't withdraw. Chapter three, verse four, he says, we have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. Trust doesn't let us stay passive. I couldn't trust my dad on the edge of the pool. I had to be active. That's what trust does. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You see, our our tendency can be just to give up. The world's overwhelming, so we just mentally and emotionally check out. We watch Netflix, we scroll through our Facebook feed, we read a book, we we escape from the world. Or we over-spiritualize and sit back and say, well, God's going to do this thing and we just don't do anything. In chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says, As for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. In times like this, when, when the world is suffering in the middle of a pandemic and people are feeling scared and alarmed and unsettled, this is exactly the time that we need to reach out. We need to be the church. And a fundamental part of being the church comes back to what Jake said about love is the motivator, right? I, I love chapter 3, verse 5. I think it's kind of the central verse in the whole book. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. He says, let your heart be directed. See, our our heart is the engine that drives us. It's it's our desire maker. And, and, you know, we can say, how many of you have known something, but you still can't get your body to participate with what you know to be true? (laughs) It's the heart that drives that. We can know it here, but until you know it here, until you have a deep desire to follow... And so he says, let your hearts be directed. The psalmist realizes the state of our hearts vital in our relationship with God. In Psalm 86, he says, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. In the prophets, 
God promised. He says in, in Ezekiel, I will give them an undivided heart. I will put a new spirit with them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Let our hearts, not just our heads, but our hearts be directed into two things. First of all, into God's love. Love is the impetus for all that we do, right? 1 Thessalonians 3.12, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Jake was saying that that's the thing that drives transformation. This, may our hearts be directed into the love of God for us and the love of God for others. We love because what? He first loved us. We're getting into 1 John next week. We'll go through all that. 1 John 4.16, what John Corbett says is my favorite verse. We, we, we come to know and rely on the love that God has for us. Let your hearts live in the love God has for you and for the world. As you struggle with misunderstanding, as you wrestle with God not meeting your expectations, as you're, <clears throat> you're, you're living with either unsettled feelings or alarm, as you fall towards passivity, either because you're just lazy or you're overwhelmed, let your heart be directed into the love of God for you and for the world. The second thing, let your heart be directed into Christ's perseverance. It's an interesting phrase. This, this patience and sticking to it, even when we know what's, what we see around us isn't, doesn't make sense, we, we stay there. That's what Christ's perseverance was. He went all the way to the cross when it looked like a fool's errand, when it looked like there was no way he'd be victorious out of it. He was he persevered. That same word for perseverance is used all through Revelation. I told you we're getting back there. Uh, let's, let's just look at Romans 5 first before we get there. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. And in, in Revelation 1.9, John, at the very beginning, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance. That's that same word, perseverance, that are ours in Christ Jesus. Revelation 13, 10, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Revelation 14, 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. That's what our hearts are to be directed into, the love of God, first of all, because that makes us secure so that we can endure, we can persevere, we can wait patiently for his coming and the, and the renewal of all things. There's a, I'm going to close with this. There's a guy... When I was in college, he was a folk singer. His name's David Wilcox. And uh, he used to play at a little place just down the street from where I went to university. And my friend Matt Alton and I used to go and listen to him. And he was, he was a nobody then. Eventually, he got a record contract. And, but I, I love this guy. He was a Christian, but he, his, his songs, I asked him one time about his faith. And he said, you know, I, I find in music that people don't want you to answer their questions. They don't believe answers that you tell them. But he says, I try to sing songs that make them ask questions that will lead them back to, this, to the truth of Jesus. And he, he does that beautifully in a lot of his songs. And he has this song called Show the Way. I'm going to play a video of it, him singing, and the lyrics will come up on the screen so you can see it. He didn't know, I don't think he did, when he was writing it, that he was writing a song that was Second Thessalonians. I mean, it really, it embodies this whole book, this, this feeling of struggle and difficulty, and is this really all there is, and yet hope at the end. So we'll just play that. You guys can listen to it and then we'll wrap it up. You say you see no hope. 
You say you see no reason we should dream that the world would ever change. You're saying love is foolish to believe, 'cause there'll always be some crazy with an army or a knife to wake you from your daydream, put the fear back in your life. Someone wrote a play just to glorify what's stronger than hate. Would they not arrange the stage to look as if the hero came too late? He's almost in defeat. It's looking like the evil side will win. So on the edge of every seat, from the moment that the whole thing began. It is love who mixed the mortar, and it's love who stacked these stones, and it's love who made the stage here. Although it looks like we're alone in this scene set in shadows, like the night is here to stay. There is evil cast around us, but it's love that wrote. This darkness, love can show the way. So now the stage is set. You feel your own heart beating in your chest. This life's not over yet. So we get up on our feet. And do our best. We play against the fear. We play against the reasons not to try. Playing for the tears burning in the happy angels' eyes. For it's love who mixed the mortar, and it's love who stacked these stones, and it's love who made the stage here. Though it looks like we're alone in this scene, set in shadows, like the night is here to stay. There is evil cast around us, but it's love that wrote the play. For in this darkness, love will show the way. The title, title of the sermon today was, Is This All There Is? It could have been, Is This As Good As It Gets? And Paul asked the Thessalonians to look at the situation and the suffering they find themselves in and to see it with eyes of faith, to realize that love, God, is the one who's driving this. He's the one who wrote the play. To trust and not fear, to engage and not withdraw, and to direct their hearts into God's love 
and to Christ's faithfulness. To realize that Jesus has given new depth and meaning to every single experience that they have. To know that love, that God has written this play. In, in this scene set in darkness like the night is here to stay, there is evil cast around us, but it's God who wrote the play. And in this darkness, God will find a way. He'll blow it out. It'll be gone. That's, that's the hope we live in despite the unsettling fear, despite the tendency to be passive. We're called to give our lives to the gospel of Jesus because one day he will return and make all things new. Let's pray. God, we, we so often see the world and it, it's a fearful place and we wonder, is this as good as it gets? Even, even knowing that one day you'll come, is this, is this as good as our current experience gets? We seem to fight and struggle and, and, and we can't seem to accomplish what we want to accomplish for the kingdom, for you, for ourselves. And God, I pray that we would not worship our expectations for the way that you lead us, that we would be able to lay down those expectations, that we would be able to receive each day as you bring it and realize that you, you're the one guiding this, you're the one directing you're calling us to engage with you in your work in the world. Free us to do that. Direct our hearts into your love. Direct our hearts into Christ's perseverance. And help us to live out of that every single day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we close. For those of you here, I don't want you to forget that afterwards we do have some coffee on. If you want to stay and have a socially distant kind of visit in the gym, we'd love to have you there in the community hall. Uh, I'm just going to use Paul's words as my prayer for you this week. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is right. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.